0: So welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. Uh, regular listeners will um, have noticed that we're now at over 50 episodes um, as we proceed onwards and all a lot of the historic recordings are available on our channels Um, so do go back and have a look at some of the interviews that we have done previously and there's lots of interesting content interesting discussions on there across a wide range of asset classes and today um, we're back in the energy sector specifically the oil sector and we have um, zephyr energy on um, with their CEO, Colin Harrington, all the way from the US. We're going to be talking a little bit about this company today. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you just give us a quick summary of Zephyr, um, the company itself, what you do and and sort of the vision you have? So
1: Zephyr is an oil and gas company with assets in the US. Somewhat unusually, we're one of the few carbon neutral oil and gas companies. I'm happy to walk you through that uh, as we go through the interview. But we're really focused on cash flow generation and organic growth from basins in the Rocky Mountain area of the USA. Um, We were founded with uh, really centered around two core values and and one larger vision. The values are that we uh, pledge to be responsible stewards of our investors' capital. And the board and our entities own 12% of this company. So we're very aligned with our other shareholders. Uh, We also pledge to be responsible stewards of the environment, both through carbon neutral operations and by minimizing our surface footprint as much as possible. But our vision, which is key, is that we're we're trying to open up the next prolific, unconventional uh, onshore U.S. oil and gas play. And it's a big vision, uh, but it's something we've assembled all the pieces uh, for. And we're pretty excited about how we're positioned and and how we can go after
0: that. You've had some fairly big news um, this week. Um, It's an updated CPR report for your um, paradox field. For people who are not as familiar with the oil industry, could you give them a quick summary of what CPR report involves? and, And then secondly, why? this one is so important for you guys
1: i think to step back for a minute you know zephyr really has two core businesses one of which is is uh non-op cash flowing production from core us basins Uh, but secondly in what you referenced here our paradox project which is in utah is about thirty-seven thousand acres of federal and state land uh that we are hoping to open up and develop uh as a horizontal hydraulically stimulated play So what that means, um, you know, this is a basin in the Paradox Basin where there was conventional oil production for the last century, really. But as fields like the Permian and the Bakken, uh, Williston Basin, you know, other of these great kind of horizontal plays in the U.S. got developed, the Paradox was really overlooked for a number of reasons. We've gone in and with a lot of help from uh, our partners in the the Department of Energy and the U.S. government and University of Utah Energy and Geosciences Institute, we've we've uh, spent years kind of systematically approaching this field with new seismic, with uh, you know new drilling techniques, uh, and and really spent a lot of time gathering data in order to assess whether we can develop this field economically, and. Uh, the CPR that we've just released kind of outlines the scale of what we have. We've had real success so far in our first well there, but we're looking to um, to obviously accelerate that and use our cash flow to to uh, stimulate this organic growth. So the CPR is an independent report. Uh, it's done by a firm called Sprol, which is in Denver, and they kind of outline uh, the resources that we have here. So you know the. The first things that the, this new report did, we had one from 2018, but the new report that has come in, has given us booked reserves. Uh, so base case kind of 2P reserves, uh, which is kind of the, the, the foundation for uh, value here. Um, we've never had that. We've always traded around a 2C reserve report. And uh, so we're excited that we've now, based on our drilling success so far, been able to book proof reserves. Secondly, uh, the report doubled our 2C estimates. Um, we've gone from uh, about 12 million barrels of oil equivalent up to 28. And that, again, was based on all of the information that we've gathered from our cores and our logs in the field, as well as the recent drilling success. So when you add these kind of base case 2P and 2C net present values together, that's more than twice our current market cap. And, and that is pretty exciting. That's kind of the the base foundation of, of, uh, of value here. But on top of that, we've been given credit for prospective resources. Uh, and again, in the in the base case that Sproul put together, uh, they've estimated over 200 million barrels of oil equivalent on top of the 2P and 2C reserves, which if we can uh, efficiently and effectively go after those reserves uh, would mean many, many multiples of value above what is currently uh, in the company as evidenced by our trading price. So we are on a good path to becoming a producer of scale here. We are fully funded to go forward. Uh, we have great cash flows coming from our non-operated business. And you know the way to realize this value is to continue drilling at the field. And We have a three-well program that's going to kick off in the second half of the year Uh, Our first well that we drilled in December will also be coming online. And uh, we're looking forward to really kind of turbocharging this development. And again, all through uh, all through our own cash flow resources. We're not dependent on a a farming partner or any other investment. We have the team and the time and the funding to go and uh, and uh, drill this up. So we're looking forward to the next few months as that gets launched.
0: Just to to confirm, you you feel that you're the sort of ongoing development of the your portfolio of assets at the moment is is entirely funded. You don't you don't think you'll need to go back to the market.
1: Correct. Over the last year, we've built uh, through acquisitions a highly economic uh, portfolio in the Williston Basin of non-operated interests. And those throw off enough cash flow uh, to enable us to to do our own, you know, to fund our own drilling, and that's by design. That's why we've done this. We 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 got uh, lucky in the sense of the overall environment. We were able to acquire a fair amount of production when the oil price was at forty five and fifty dollars a barrel, and now that uh, we're at one hundred, uh, and we've hedged half of that production for the next two years, we have a great cash flow stream, which then will get deployed into the organic growth at the Paradox Basin.
0: You mentioned just then um, your, your Williston development as well. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that, um, you know, how much that produces and what sort of production targets you're looking at?
1: Uh, in the Williston right now, uh, in the first quarter, we averaged just over 1,600 barrels a day of production. For February alone, it threw off about $6 million of revenue net to us. Um, it's highly economic, high-margin oil production, and we are partnered there. Uh, I think we have 185 currently producing wells, uh, all operated by Whiting, uh, which is one of the largest operators in the basin. And it's a really it's been an interesting strategy. Um, you know, we, we saw that a lot of operators in these core basins uh, are really capital constrained at this point, even though prices are so strong. Investors have, have insisted upon discipline, which means that operators really commit their capex to, uh, to their own operated budget, even though they're often pulled into non-operated wells uh, because of, of the complexity of land positions there. So we've been able to go in and, and for very little money up front, uh, buy up these non-operated interests that the operators won't fund and, uh, and be able to participate alongside other good operators in the basin. Um, it's been a, a highly effective way to build up a position there We've done uh, six acquisitions in the last 12 months uh, to get to this place, and we now have a a PDP portfolio uh, that's worth and and sorry I should say it's a full one P and two P portfolio that's worth over 100 million dollars. Uh, so it's been great growth. Uh, it's obviously been been fantastic for our share price as well. We were uh, the top performing stock on AIM last year as we were putting this together, and I think it's a it's an excellent compliment. Uh, and an excellent way to fund our ambitions in the paradox. So uh, we're we're very excited about how it's pulled together, and we think uh, you know timing's been excellent for what we're doing.
0: And you mentioned there the important. I mean, you you're um, been building the business by acquiring new assets, and I'm presuming here that you're you're continuing to be on the on the lookout for more in the future. What is it that you look for when when you're looking for a, a successful new oil or gas producing asset?
1: Well, I think I should say up front, we really are extraordinarily selective in how we grow through acquisitions um, as evidenced by what we've done so far. We have a great team on the ground and and we see a lot of opportunities, but particularly now with prices so high, we're certainly not going to chase uh, the strip upwards and we're we're not going to uh, participate in auctions and pay top dollar for anything. So really has to be a special situation for us to participate, particularly because the competition for dollars in our own portfolio is the paradox where we think that ge- the returns we can generate are so so uh, so substantial. So uh, we will look for highly accretive assets. Uh, we'll look for production history or near-term cash flows. And really, uh, it's got to be in a core basin like the Williston or the DJ and have a strong weighting towards oil. Um, we think the portfolio we put together right now, with its well more diversity and and strong operator partners, is 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 uh, really you know helped us accelerate the growth of this company overall. Um, And if we if we do more deals, it would have to be the same thing, highly accretive and and, uh, rapid returns.
0: Earlier on, you mentioned carbon neutral and and the fact that the the company was carbon neutral. Now, for some people listening to this, um, they'll be thinking oil companies, how how on earth can that be carbon neutral? can you can you give us a little bit more background there on on how you go about achieving that how how something like a, a um, oil production play like this fits into the ESG category?
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, as I pointed out in the beginning about our core values, this is really fundamental to what we're doing. My, my, the board and I uh, have all been in this industry for a long time and have been somewhat appalled at the damage that's been done uh, to certain areas in the U.S. and abroad by the industry. So we set this up to try to demonstrate best practices, uh, both at a macro level and a micro level. And at the macro level, as as you mentioned, we are carbon neutral. And what that means is we offset 100% of our scope one uh, carbon emissions, our operated carbon emissions, by buying verified emission reduction credits. Uh, Those credits are generated by renewable energy projects, for example, or mine methane projects, uh, capping uh, legacy wells and and prohibiting emissions from them. So we, we are Purchasing uh, those credits and offsetting all of our uh, scope one emissions, we have a joint venture with a company called Prax, uh, which is an English uh, m- trading and refining company that has has been instrumental to getting us there. And it's uh, you know it's been interesting because I think on the one hand we do pay. Uh, you know, under a dollar a barrel for each of these VERS that we buy. But on the other hand, we also, we're also seeing some premium pricing for how we can sell our barrels because they are considered fully offset. So that's, that's the macro impact that we try to have on a micro level. So at our, our footprint, our operational footprint, um, we're also incredibly cognizant of our, our surface impact and our impact on communities. So we operate uh, on a former U.S. Uh, Air Force missile testing site. It's a brownfield site in the middle of the desert, uh, but in an area where there's really no community impact to what we're doing. Uh, from a travel or from a truck and noise perspective, it's a, a place where we can operate with minimal impact to others. Uh, secondly, we're we obviously very judicious in, uh, in how we have a surface footprint. Uh, we'll try to drill multiple wells from the same from the same pad, for example, and do things like, uh, you know, we'll never be long-term flaring gas, for example. We, we, we just won't, uh, we'll try to minimize our impact as much as possible uh, at the local level as well as at the macro level. So, um, you know, it's fundamental to what we do. It's really important. And I think, uh, you know, it, it also is something that, uh, you know, has, has, not just uh, proven to, to have environmental impact, but also, uh, you know, it's helped us with, with pricing and with our relationship with the federal and state government and, and with even the refiners who are buying our oil. So we're, we're pretty proud of how it's turned out so far.
0: I mean, taking a step back, do you think, I mean, we've seen some of the sort of bigger players in the uh, US oil industry coming under a lot of pressure from shareholders to develop more of a strategy along these lines. Do you do you think that the sector overall is 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 going to have to sort of adopt many of the practices that you have already been talking about here and that, that even and also not just the shareholders but the consumers of oil products will also be asking oil companies to bring in these kinds of strategies that you've just discussed? Yeah, I think there's no question that it's happening.
1: Um you know, and, and a great example is uh, when you see that that a company the size of ExxonMobil can have a, a shareholder revolt and, and have, uh, you know, a board turnover because of these issues. That's a pretty powerful statement. So I do think it's coming. I think capital discipline is incredibly important in the U.S. sector as well. You're seeing companies more focused on uh, returning cash flow to shareholders and to, you know, Committing to capex levels that are, you know, seventy to eighty percent of cash flow rather than one hundred and twenty percent, for example. Um, so, uh, along with those capital constraints uh, that, that shareholders are instilling, we're certainly seeing that on the environmental side, and we're seeing companies trying to be better actors. And, and so, I am happy; I am really happy with that. You know, it's also an interesting time given what's happening on a global basis and, and the tragedies in Ukraine. That's um, that's something where I think. You know we're all waking up to the fact that ESG also involves energy security and how that impacts uh, other ESG constraints. It might be a difficult push and pull for a while, but I'm certainly you know from the standpoint of how we're positioned, I'm I'm very comfortable with it right now, and, and think there's an opportunity for us to continue doing more to try to be a best practice operator.
0: I was talking uh, this morning to a um, fund manager in Hong Kong, and there was a lot of discussion um, on that call about. The US and its ability to um, address higher oil prices, and that the US um, industry could actually expand quite rapidly to meet the demand of higher oil prices. Ha- what's your feeling about the overall health of the, the US um, sort of exploration and oil production sector at the moment?
1: I, I see much greater limits on the US's ability to, uh, to increase production. You know, it's a very uh, difficult time in terms of services and supplies that you need to, uh, to continue to increase production. So you have not only logistical hurdles like getting steel for casing and getting crews and drivers. Uh, it's not so much rig availability, but but general labor, labor constraints, which are a real issue right now. Even if those are resolved, and they will be, what I also see is just a, a completely new investor attitude towards the sector. And I've talked about this a couple of times today, but there, are, there's a new view, a new paradigm around capital and, and how these producers can spend money. Uh, we're, we're one of them. And it's much more disciplined than it has in the past. It has been. So there's a focus on dividends. There's a focus on uh, spending, you know, CapEx levels much less than your overall cash flow. And as a result of that, we're not seeing a huge amount of capital flow back into the sector. And that, that which is there is being spent more wisely. You know, there, there was a focus in the past around uh, growth for growth's sake. You know, not, not so much looking at cash flow, but looking at production levels. And a lot of companies over the last decade wound up uh, producing uh, oil and gas, which wasn't particularly economic. That seems to be different now. So I don't think there's an easy solution where the U.S. just turns on its taps and companies start drilling, uh, you know, with wild abandon. I really think uh, there there's both investor constraints and logistical constraints that will keep it from uh, being able to produce as much as people expect, and that you know is one of the reasons why I'm why I'm fairly bullish on the oil price here. Um, I think I think supply constraints globally are going to be difficult. And as a result, uh, you know, we're happy to have a fair amount of exposure to the upside of the oil price.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you as a company respond to that and um, you know, how, you, how you hedge your production and how, how, you, how you actually sell your end product and who it is, who it goes to? Uh,
1: it, our, our hedging program is relatively straightforward. We want to have a bulletproof balance sheet and we want to lock in uh, surety around the cash flows for our next 12 months CapEx. So what that means in our particular case is that we've hedged out about half, a little less than half of our current production. Uh, We've just done it. We've hedged with BP as our counterparty and we've locked in about $30 million of revenue over the next 24 months. So that gives us plenty of capital to execute the next three wells in the paradox and to service our debt and, and pay it down quite considerably. Uh, we only have uh, $28 million of debt outstanding anyway, um, so we, we're, we're a very conservatively capitalized company, but uh, you know it's important for us to have, have that bulletproof balance sheet, but at the same time, uh, leave exposure to the upside of oil and gas prices. We have a fair amount of gas production as well. Uh, our gas production is not locked in today. It's, it's uh, completely open to the upside, and we're seeing the benefits of that right now, given the strong gas pricing here in the U.S.,
0: so the gas you mentioned, that's basically almost like a, a byproduct. You're really, you're really producing and exploring oil, but there's also gas there as well. So you separate that off and you sell that into the gas market as well.
1: Correct. Every well uh, that we participate in has both gas and oil. Uh, for the last decade or so, the oil price has really been the driver of economics. And, and gas was trading at times less than $2 an MCF. Now with gas pricing, uh, you know six, seven, eight dollars in MCF, depending on the day, we're we're actually starting to recognize pretty strong economics, uh, rather than rather than just seeing it as a product that could be sold at more or less par. It's it's actually starting to provide some cash flows as well. So we're we're very bullish about both the gas and the oil price, as I talked about on the SG side. We will never be a long-term flarer of gas. I, I think that's incredibly wasteful, both from an environmental perspective, but also an economic perspective. So everything that we're doing is, is uh, participating in, in wells or projects like our operator project, where we will tie the gas in and sell it uh, and hopefully receive strong economics on that too.
0: Yeah, many, many years ago, I lived in the Middle East and I can remember the, them flaring the gas off and thinking that does seem crazy to be yeah. wasting that stuff.
1: What's interesting is, uh, you know, the, the Permian and, and the Bakken, you could fly over it at night and it was like daylight. I mean, it's just extraordinary how much uh, gas is being flared. But that really is changing. And, and I'm glad to see that.
0: And, and just finally, before we finish, can can you, um, I know there's a there's lot you probably can't talk about, but can you give us um, an idea what investors uh, can expect to see from Zephyr um, for the rest of this year?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what, what you'll see, you know, the highlight is that we will, Drill our next three wells uh, in the Paradox Basin, and those will both uh, help delineate the the prolific reservoir, the Cane Creek, uh, which is the the historically produced reservoir here. But we're also going to test one of the upper overlying reservoirs. Uh, we have eight of them that are high graded; uh, they're over twenty. But we've high graded eight. Uh, we've we've already uh, taken. Uh, sidewall samples from them. So we know there are movable hydrocarbons in there. And if we can uh, test one of these zones appropriately and have success, then that 200 million barrels of oil equivalent that I talked about at the beginning will no longer be just a prospective resource, but actually will be moving to 2C or, or even to proved resources. And that would be many multiples of value uh, to us uh, in, in versus where we are today. So we're really excited about this program coming up. Uh, you know, we're continuing to, to grow the production and the cash flow generation from our non-operated assets in the Williston Basin, and we're also looking at uh, opportunities to to uh, co-locate uh, ventures against the next to our State Sixteen Two well, uh, which is the first well we drilled in the Paradox. It could involve uh, a crypto mining venture or another form of monetization. Really, an infrastructure project that would allow us to sell gas right on site, and uh, and potentially receive higher revenues from it than we would if we're selling it simply into the pipeline. So we've got a fair amount that's coming up here in the very near term, and uh, we're feeling pretty bullish about how we're how we're positioned. So I'm, I'm very excited for the next few months.
0: Oh, fantastic well we'll be we'll be keeping a close eye on on developments from from you guys uh, as you say and um, uh, um, good luck with good luck with the rest of the year and thanks very much indeed for coming on the podcast this afternoon.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it and uh, really enjoyed the chat.
0: You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.